Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Welcome to the Publishing Rodeo Podcast. We have with us Daphne of Illumicrate and Daphne Press fame. We feel extremely lucky to have her here because Sunny and I and friends have been watching from afar all of the things that have been happening with Daphne Press. And we it, we've been talking for even longer about you know, why is publishing so broken? What would it look like if publishing weren't broken? And then lo and behold, we see a publisher break onto the scenes that seems to have a lot of things figured out. So we're very excited to have you here, Daphne. And we've got a lot of questions lined up. Thank you for having me and all of the very kind words. <laughs> we were wondering if you could sort of tell us about the founding of Illumicrate, what, what sparked the idea and how you got started. Because the first time I ever heard of Crates, I think, was when Harper was trying to woo me during the, the auction and they sent a marketing deck that said, we'll pitch you for Crates. And I remember reading it thinking, what's a Crate? And, and then I learned how absolutely important they are really on the, on, the, on the publishing scene and was blown away. So anyway, feel free to tell us about yourself. By anyone does it, I am, I am Daphne. I am the founder of Illumicrate and Daphne Press. Illumicrate came first. I first got into sort of the book world through book blogging. So I was a book blogger 2011, so like a long time ago. And it was kind of at the height of, you know, when blogs were a thing and, and book blogs were a thing. And I kind of found the book community through that. I made a lot of friends, you know, um, got to know a lot of authors, got to know a lot of people that worked in publishing through the book blog. And in 2015, when crates were becoming a thing, not necessarily book crates, but just crates in general, you know, there was a lot of things like loot crate and, you know, like beauty crates and, and food crates and things like that. I thought, well, why don't I do a book one? <laughs> and that was the extent of my <laughs> thought process for a limit crate. Why don't I do one? It obviously took longer than that to get it set up and, and get started, but I felt that because I had connections in publishing, I could source the books, I could source some bon you know, bonus material. And back then, you know, we didn't have all the fancy all bells and whistles approach to the books. We were just getting trade copies with signed book plates or author letters or something along those lines. But I felt confident that I could source them. And I also felt confident in working with small other small businesses to provide items for the crates as well. So I put my first box together in November of 2015. We had a 150 boxes. 
back then. That was the, the first box. We packed everything in my living room. I bribed friends with some pizza. <laughs> and I said, why don't you guys spend your hard-earned Saturday afternoon at my living room packing boxes? <laughs> And they said, sure, we'd love to. Shout out to, to those friends who, who helped me from the very start. And yeah, it, it grew from there. And in 2018, I took the business uh, full time. So I, when I started the business, I had a separate job, a separate full time job in the finance sector. And in 2018, I kind of just made the leap and decided to try and you know make Illumicrate work full-time and thankfully it it has <laughs> so yet another overnight success story that actually has been eight years in the making absolutely i mean i don't think people realize how old like you know how long it's been in going on it, it has been eight years this year you know um and it was a very slow start you know it, it took it was a, a pretty much a crawl, I think, for the first five years of the business. It was growing, but very steadily and very slowly. And it wasn't until the pandemic hit that the demand just kind of really shot up and gratefully has kind of stayed relatively consistent since. Yeah. And was that, did that happen fairly organically when the pandemic hit or was there some, you know, outreach, something that you put together that, that made that happen? I think we were fortunate in that, at least in the UK, and I'm pretty sure in other countries as well, obviously online businesses were still allowed to run during the pandemic. So fulfillment centers were allowed to run, the mail was allowed to run. And so we were, I guess, lucky enough to be in one of those industries that was completely online and, you know, all of the parts of the business that affected, you know, like the production of the books, like the shipping of the books, the packing of the books, those were all allowed to sort of run as quote unquote normal as, as possible. So when people were shopping online and people were reading more, it just kind of, it, there, there was a lot of organic looking for things. It also did sort of coincide with the whole, when we were trying to make books prettier as well, as well, you know, I think, Back then we were starting to do a little bit. We were spraying a few edges here and there. And, and I think, you know, that with the whole, everyone just had a lot of time to order stuff online, just sort of worked, worked its, its, its magic together. Yeah. And just bookstores being shut. I mean, you can't go outside except for limited activities in the day. So it's like, where are you going to get your books from? Delivered to your house <laughs> with toys. Yep. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I am curious how your user base grew between the UK and US, whether you have any other, you know, footholds in other territories, that kind of thing. What does that look like? And, and how hard was that to build in both places at once? I think the UK grew pretty, pretty steadily, um, but is obviously a, just a much smaller market than, than the US is. And, you know, the US will always be the largest kind of English speaking market because it is the largest English speaking country in terms of population. There's always a factor of cost, right? Because when we were shipping everything from the UK, the cost to ship our box to the US was nearly as much as, as the box itself. And that's just what international shipping is like. It, it is expensive. The boxes are relatively sizable. They're heavy because they've got books in them. And so there's only, you know, you do just have to pay to get it, you know, 
on a plane across across the ocean. Europe's always been a really big market for us and we do have a lot of customers in Europe because um, we're lucky enough to use a, a really great sort of a shipper that kind of was able to navigate things in Europe, especially with Brexit and, and all of that stuff and have kept our European shipping rates relatively low. And we do a lot of operational things right in Europe. I think, you know, you know, we take people's VAT front and, and pay it over to the authorities rather than people having to pay it when they receive their parcel. And, and it's just little things like that, that I think um, has really helped our European customers like, you know, be really satisfied with our offering, both from like a a price and also from a like a admin <laughs> perspective for them. In terms of uh, growing the 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 market in the U.S. is is vast. It, it it generally is vast. You know, there are so many people. There's so many book lovers, which is which is great. Yeah, I mean, I remember looking at the the cost of Lima Crate when I first started because when I first learned about crates, I thought I should learn about this because it's relevant to me. And being really surprised that actually like if you get like the basic ones that are just I think the book it's not really that much more than going into a store and buying it but it's prettier and it gets delivered and I was like okay that that's that was really impressive to me and you mentioned how you started doing kind of the sprayed edges I won't say my least favorite word <laughs> Scott looks confused I'll say it once for you Scott <laughs> spredges spredges the worst word oh. Oh yeah, no, I'm, it's nails on chalk. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not deep into that, uh, deep enough into that world to yeah, so know it, that term or care really. It, it's so. an amalgamation <laughs> of sprayed edges, but yeah, I love, I love how they look. I just the, the term. How much marketing knowledge did you have before you started, and you know, what prompted you to move into like making kind of the books look special? And was that just something you were doing gradually and finding it was successful? And yeah, I, I think it was a little bit of everything. The the the, the edges, uh, whether sprayed and obviously now you know sort of digitally printed. Uh, we went through a phase of stenciling. We went through a phase of ombre. Like there are many different processes for coloring edges of books, and I can I can I can spend the whole hour on like you know production. <laughs> Book production because I have I have become quite the expert on 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 all the different ways you can you can uh, make a book pretty. But I think that just kind of came from honestly printer what printers were able to do and some genius at a printer was like why don't we literally use a spray machine and spray some color onto the edges of books and wouldn't that look nice <laughs> and i think we first started yeah we first started doing some sprayed edges in like maybe 2019 ish you know i think you know, there was like um some books of ours started to have you know just like a one colored sprayed edge and that was like a big deal you know <laughs> um i think as printer capacity became better you know they've invested a lot a lot into machines that can do amazing things to, to books it just became you know we we would we always talk to the publisher in a lot of detail about how we want our books to look anyway um and you know we always know that people love fan art for example in books people love you know drawings of the characters people love a fancy edge people want their books to look unique and special and you know, I think 
we more than other places have really pushed the boat on what's like feasible to do with the book. You know, I think our, me and our team, we have real, real pie in the sky ideas of like how nice we can make books look. I, I was a big, I'm a lover of the acetate dust jacket, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, uh, which is something I did for one of our books last year. And I, I absolutely love it. You know, it's things like that. Like I, I just, I see things or I think about things and it's like, what if that would look nice? And actually we are in a fortunate enough position now where if there's something that we want to see on a book, you know, we can kind of get the publishers to ask the printers if it's possible, you know? So it's a mix of what the printers are capable of doing. And now it is like, what can, what's, what, there's like imaginations, your limit almost, and then we'll see what the printer can do, which is a really nice kind of shift but our curation team have a, have a great time with it. I'm very tempted to ask about your full supply chain, but I think that's probably <laughs> better held for offline. That, one, that wasn't in the approved list. We, we, we can talk about that. Yeah, a separate conversation. Yeah, those are industry secrets right there. Um, I, I, and I, I think we're gonna ask some duplicate questions along the way as we move from uh, Illumicrate into Daphne and, and how those differ. But I am curious how you choose books for Illumicrate specifically, because I know you've got a lot of really big names, which is smart and probably doesn't need a lot of explanation, but I think you've got some pretty unique uh, selections as well that might not have been just an obvious, well, this is gonna sell a shit ton of books, right? So is, is, there, is there some unique insight that you have into your user base and how you select books uh, based on that? I would say that selecting books is is a is an entire team's process, you know, so I am not the only like it used to be just me. Now it is my entire team that get involved in selecting books. And that's one of the perks of working for Limit Rate. You get access to all the cool manuscripts that we get. But our entire team are free to read any of the submissions that we have and you know and people find things they're passionate about and you know want want to champion it i i do the same i i kind of follow the same process as the rest of my team i'll read a blurb or I, you know something will get pitched to me that i'm really into i will read it i will love it and i'll be like yes i want to do that for a limit crate um when i set up a limit crate or when the limit crate was founded we we always did want to support you know debut authors that was always a big priority of mine because we are in like such a unique position to be able to share you know a debut author's book with with a lot of people and I, I was that way when I blogged as well I always I always paid special attention to and you know made an effort to read debut book and you know shout about them if, if I love them and you know I, I've kind of carried that same thing on with Lumi Crate. In terms of like um, how we determine the entire so we we think of a limit crate almost in seasons so when we plan we plan it in seasons you know q1 q2 q3 q4 kind of thing um and we think what have we got on this this season you know and we try to pick titles that are not too similar to each other so we really we really like a balanced list we will include some big authors because you know i think that's to me, that's a kind of a, a nice thank you to our subscribers. You know, it's like, a, here's a book that we know you're going to love because, you know, you love, this is a very popular author and it really resonates with our audience. And then we usually like to then have, you know, 
some lesser known authors and new authors uh, in the mix as well. And we really try our best to look at the year as a whole and make sure that we're balanced in, in every aspect of the types of books that we're promoting, the types of authors who are writing these books, the, the sort of stories they are, you know. We really do try to balance like the entire schedule. And the team are great because, you know, I, I could not do the reading, all the reading required <laughs> to, to run Illuminate. Daphne Press and our other two boxes, uh, Afterlight, which is our romance box, and Evernight, which is our horror box, myself. And so it's great to have the help of the team and their opinions. And, and you know, we just, we have to trust each other's tastes. We have to, you know, rely on each other to make good decisions about the books and know that the books that we pick our audiences will like. And our team are so involved with our audience. You know, we have our own Discord, you know, we have we're on all the social media. Obviously my team interact with customers on email all the time as well, you know, via customer service. You know, we just get a really good vibe. They get a really good vibe of what works and what doesn't work. So, I mean, in the on the author side, because crates really were was massively taking off when I was I think around the time I'd sold my debut and just a bit before and, and when kind of pubs were looking at pitching it and stuff and there there was talk between agents and editors about what books are crate books and whether a book might be a crate book do you feel like that is a thing do you feel like either Illumicrate specifically or crates in general have a kind of feel to them I don't know if that's because I know you're looking for variety um, but also for example like I was discussing this in discord the other day right I was saying to to Ryan like I love Annihilation but I you would never see that book in like a crate or like Game of Thrones that that doesn't feel like a crate book to me and I was trying to pin down like what does like Gideon feels Gideon the Ninth feels like a crate book but you know Annihilation doesn't and <laughs> I guess uh, yeah if, if you have a sense of like what that means or First of all, I I was not, I was not aware for uh, a time that publishers were specifically, you know, saying that things were or were not crate books or, or pitching it as such to authors and or agents. I was not aware that that was that was a thing. But you know, I've, I've heard it. I've heard it now. <laughs> so now I am aware. We have to look at the crate consumer, like the, the average crate consumer, who would be mainly female, mainly in this, their sort of 20s and 30s, I want to say. And probably lean more towards fantasy than any other genre, you know? So taking all of those into consideration, I guess you kind of have to then pitch books that you know will appeal to a female 20 to 30 something fantasy loving audience, you know? And that's, that's not to say that's all our customers are, you know, we obviously have a lot of customers that fall outside of those brackets. You know, we're very grateful for our customers sticking, you know, for sticking with us and for choosing Illumicrate because we do uh, provide a wider range of different options than other retailers. I guess that's maybe what publishers mean when they say this is a, a crate book, right? Uh, it is a book that will appeal to that particular audience. I think among ourselves, we were, all, we were also speculating that it can mean basically books that lend themselves well to creating like a fandom in a way so uh, again to use like Gideon as an example you go to a convention there'll be loads of people dressed up as, as Gideon or Ninth House folks or loads of fan art loads of <laughs> fan fiction I suppose things that inspire fan interaction whereas 
you know, I love annihilation, but nobody wants to be the biologist. (laughs) (laughs) I, I completely agree with you. There are certain things that will make people want to turn the story into a fandom yeah. you know hot character yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool world building you know uh you know like having powers or feeling like you could see yourself in that world because you can you can be that you can have that power or you could be that type of person or you could go to that school or you know those sort of things but you know to me you know, we did feature Gideon in, in one of our boxes, but to me, like, Gideon is, um, it's not really a, a, a very obvious box book, I thought, because it's, it's so, it's so strange, you know, like, <laughs> it doesn't really follow the kind of linear storytelling, it's very, you know, it, it's very irreverent, and um, that I actually don't think it is a box book, but I think, yeah, and not in, like, not in the sense I think it's it's sci-fi you know it's not really even really fantasy it's like kind of a you know so it's not really taking a lot of what I would consider what the majority of box buyers would think was a really great book but I think that book was just obviously so good that it sort of it grabbed the the yeah exactly it just grabbed the audience and just like kept them enthralled (laughs) you you having your criteria, you know, and, and you obviously understand your target audience. And that was, you know, something I might actually touch on a little bit later. Um, but you, you having a pretty good idea of who you're targeting and how and what, what makes a crate book, or in your case, really just an Illumicrate book or your other uh, variations. And then how other people try to interpret that based on what you release is extremely interesting i i love that and i love how i love how wrong (laughs) we we get it when we're like looking at things and trying to interpret based on that i do have just one question based on what you said about targeting you know targeting your audience does that mean that you're primarily uh trying to like hit your major user base that female 20s to 30s fantasy lover with every book and then trying to branch out here and there but not lose your main base or do you have specific books that you target toward like oh we have a you know group of people that like uh sci-fi or something but it's not our main user base but we'll throw them a bone every once in a while how do you think about your market segmentation and, and how you target uh different groups no that's a great question honestly we very much you know, we, we target and we don't target. I know it's it's like a stupid answer, but, um, we know who our core audience are, but we, as a company love other types of books and want our audience to love those types of books. So we almost, we ask our audience to trust us when we pick something that is maybe different or irreverent or is out of their their comfort zone of reading and we ask them to trust that they know our taste we know their taste and this book will deliver something that they will enjoy even though it's not something that they would normally pick up have you had like a a lot of backlash for anything you've released and and was it obvious um not really 
really backlash so much. Um, Sci-fi is always a harder sell for us. Every time we release like a theme and we mention that the book is a sci-fi book, you will naturally get people that just opt out. You know, they'll be like, oh, we're skipping this month because it's a sci-fi book. And, you know, there's not really a lot we can do about that. But as a, as a business, we love sci-fi and we want to support sci-fi authors and sci-fi stories. It's the same unfortunately sometimes with you know queer books or diverse books which hurts my heart more i think when people choose to opt out of those stories it's not really backlash in that oh you've picked a really horrible book you know um like you know no one likes it. it is got one star rating on goodread you know what i mean no like and i feel like i trust my taste and my team's taste enough that that wouldn't happen but there's certainly books with certain content that maybe other people don't resonate as well with. And you see it when when you get the skips, essentially. So it is, it is, it's mostly skips, and you, you probably see that in real time pretty quick mm -hmm. rather than having to wait for people to read and get mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they do that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you get plenty of emails and chats and what have you. I will admit I actually snuck onto the um, Illumicrate Discord early on. I left before my book came out, but I was just curious because when I'm in learning mode, I try and learn everything about a thing I don't know because I can't cope with not knowing information. <laughs> but it blew me away that he was like this very interlocked, complicated, invested community, very active, very lively. All the stuff where it's like, oh, the the reveals, the hints, the way everyone's reading it together at the same time. And, you know, it creates a live kind of FOMO. And it, I was like, this is really cool. I wonder why publishers don't do it. Because because then you've got a whole community of people where even it's like they're not necessarily that excited about the book or they don't know, it wouldn't be their thing. They might try anyway to read it with their friends. And there's still that discussion, interaction. It becomes a community engagement activity instead of just this solitary thing that you do at home in your living room. Uh, right. Anyway, sorry. I'll, I'll let Scott go to the next question now. <laughs> no, and I mean, I I think that's a really interesting subject. How much of that was purposeful in terms of creating a community that does read-alongs and things like that? And did you notice a big uptick in you know growth or maybe retention, etc., when you put that together? I I'm not. You know, I don't know, like, I don't know if there is a specific correlation, but I do know that it fosters that community feel and reading, as Sunny said, is sometimes such a solitary thing and it's not consumed in the same way that other forms of media are consumed, like TV shows or films, you know, when they're out, everyone goes to watch them and see them kind of at the same time, you know, and then the conversation is very now it's very of the moment because everyone it's fresh in everyone's head and everyone's watched it at the same time whereas books are different so even when books come out and people may even buy them all at the same time but they don't necessarily read them at the same time you know because it's uh, it's a bigger time investment you know than a lot of other forms of, of media um it is you know, you need to be in the mood, I think, to, to read a book and to, to spend, you know, four to eight hours, you know, reading something. And, you know, that's for me, like I'm, 
I'm a relatively quick reader. I'm sure it takes a little people a lot longer to read books. I think that community feel really helps in terms of getting people excited about books, uh, getting people wanting to continue reading the book because they know that they've got someone to talk to about it. Oh yeah, I mean, I think we all know that feeling as well. Growing up, like I, because I was one of the only people reading fantasy in Hong Kong in in the nineties in my Christian school, and you know, I'd read this book and finish it and be amazing, and then it's like literally no one else I know is reading these. I've no one to talk to, but kind of now with the the Illuminate stuff, I. I was very aware that like, wow, people are going to read the book. They're going to get online. They're going to get a discord to their community and say, hey, did you read chapter 20 yet? And everyone has, or a lot of people have. <laughs> and it's great. I'm the same as you. I grew up in the Philippines and it, it was it's very it was very hard to find um, fantasy books in, in the 90s. Um, and I remember I was in, oh, what great, I was in, eight, so I must have been about 12 or 13. And our local bookstore had just stocked like this, this fantasy series. Um, and like seven of us classmates were like, look, we're all gonna, we're all gonna buy it and read it, you know, like, or, you know, we're gonna buy like two sets and we're all gonna share them and read them kind of at the same time so we can all talk about them. And I, um, that was kind of my introduction into fantasy. And so I, I, I now looking back feel like that was quite formative, you know, to have that kind of community around me that, and we were all talking about the same book at the same time. That was so nice. Like, yeah. So how does that social media fit with your business? Because I think social media is a big part of building your community. And one of the things that we're always told in trad publishing is that social media doesn't really gain traction with readers, but that is exactly what Illumicrates has done, like you've got a massive social following and they're very, very engaged. Kudos to my social media managers, honestly. So the, my, my first employee I ever hired is Caitlin. She's now our chief operations officer and does so much for the, for the business, both for Illumicrate and Daphne Press. Um, shout out to Caitlin. Um, but I initially hired her on to take over so- social media and um, customer service. That was her first job at Illumicrate um, because I wanted to not do social media <laughs> as soon as possible <laughs> she's done a terrific job with it and then we then hired another social media manager we're on our third social media manager now and you know i think social media in itself has changed a lot since i i first started using it and i started i was running the Illumicrate account but what I do have to say, I guess, is because we are selling a very visually appealing product, you know, the visual social media works really well for us in terms of obviously the majority of our following is on Instagram and, you know, that's how we grew our business. Um, now it's it's on TikTok, I guess it's on TikTok and obviously YouTube was a huge, we never ran our own YouTube channel, but we obviously collaborated with you booktubers that did and because our products are so um, visual and you know the kind of the opening of the crate and the taking things out and taking photos of everything together was good content not just for us but for everyone that you know produced it I think naturally it just started to gain traction in in that in that way but that's something I, I hadn't fully realized until literally today, right now during this conversation, is that you're not just selling a gorgeous product and a fun personal experience, but you're you're selling 
a community experience, which is fantastic. Just what Apple um, does. Man. When you, yeah. Well, it used to drive me nuts when I was a kid because I always felt like when I was a teenager, I used to refuse to use Apple products because people who buy Apple products <laughs> used to say, oh, they're joining the Apple cult, right? It becomes like a lifestyle thing. It's like you've got your, <laughs> I, your Apple phone and your Apple iPod and it plugs into your Apple PC and your mouse can is that yeah. but it is smart it's smart <laughs> I have one brother in my whole family I have one brother that doesn't have an iPhone and our family texts are all fucked up because of that one brother <laughs> stupid hunter is a little hipster and he won't get an iPhone anyway um, I, I, I do sorry I just I did want to circle back on 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 the point about um, publishers potentially you know I mean, yes, a lot of them have social media presences and they can obviously do a social media push, but it's like all brands, you know, and customers are really savvy now and they know that when a brand is working with an influencer, they are paying the influencer to, to do it. And so their reviews and their unboxings and their photos are not 100% um, authentic. And I think the book community is probably one of the last this this vestiges or you know um one of the last communities that is very much a hundred percent powered by authenticity and what is authentic and what isn't you know and i think um if publishers were do and publishers do work with influencers and and it, it works great but i think there's always there's always a caveat from a customer's point of view i think that you know this person has been paid to talk about this book rather than this person has bought this book out of their own money and are now talking about it. Yeah. So I feel like that is a, and like a I, I do think Harper are really savvy just from what I've seen of them and their marketing. Um, and I do think there's a, a degree to which keeping some distance between themselves and readers is a choice that they make. You know that meme where the guy's like, hello, fellow kids. <laughs> <laughs> with the, uh -huh. right no but you know what i mean you don't want to give that vibe you're like hey we're pretending to be cool and it's like mm, you're a corporation <laughs> yeah i mean but at the same time like they are they're doing they're going through the same process they find a book they like they're championing it as people they're they're a fairly small group of people i'm i'm thinking more of on the you know the side of a, putting together a discord that kind of thing there's just not a lot of community and I know some publishers have kind of tried to do a little bit of that over time, and it hasn't worked great for them for one reason or another. Well, I think targeting um, booksellers. My, my point is, it's very cool that yeah. you are. Yeah. I, I think targeting yeah. booksellers continues to work for them, and that that that's the readership that they target. Because if yeah. you if booksellers love your book, they'll sell dozens of copies. So. And it's great. And yeah, I think I've seen so many publishers that do target booksellers specifically. You know, they have like bookseller only arcs, or you know, they invite booksellers to specific events to pitch their books to and i always think that's yeah. a great marketing strategy you know yep. for, for publishers yeah and, and i mean that community aspect does matter a lot because i mean even today you 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 two talked about growing up how much that influenced you and what you read and and maybe how you enjoyed it but i find myself even now reading i i have a huge stack up here is my mostly my whole stack of books that i i need to read still um, although I have some read some of those, um, but I find myself pushing my, you know, literally hundreds of books that I, I want to read and have own 
aside for whatever book my friends, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Richard, whoever, are saying, oh, my God, this is so good. And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll read it. I'm getting that even, I get that even just with uh, my staff in our staff chats, you know, like if someone's reading something and they're very involved with it, obsessed with it, I want to say, they make everyone want to read it. And then they do. And then we have a long conversation about the books. And it's really fun, you know, because you want to read something that other people have read because people naturally I think want to share their opinions on books and you want to know that someone's listening. I, th I think we need to have a psychologist on one of these days because not only does it influence what I read, it influences how I read. And I think not only am I giving books more time when somebody I know and trust says, hey, this is good, check it out. You know, I, I'm really enjoying this. But I think my expectations going in, I'm looking for those to be met and I'm looking for reasons for those to be met. And I might be putting aside some issues I might have with whatever I'm reading that I otherwise wouldn't because, you know, there's that group aspect. So that's really fun and really awesome that you do that for debuts. So I was just going to say from the author side, it, it felt to me like Illumicrate was having a big impact on the book landscape, not just changing how publishers operate, because obviously before their crates were thing, they didn't pay attention to it. Now that they are, they're very aware of it. Um, but I think, I think it has an impact on how we think about books and how we view them as more collectible. And that it's kind of like, especially with eBooks, basically destroying mass market paperbacks. And mm -hmm. and now now it's more extreme, right? You get an eBook, you get an audiobook, you have like a collectible hardback. And I just wondered if you felt like Illumicrate was changing that book scene, or if you were kind of aware of that in a sense. I don't know if it's just Illumicrate that's obviously driven the sort of the book collecting market um, I'm sure it has had an impact on it for sure I'm not going to say that we haven't um, I I am a collector so as, as a person I am a collector and when I when I collect I, I collect hard <laughs> you know so I go all in um, yeah I, I don't have chill hobby <laughs> <laughs> this is what I've discovered about myself. I cannot just like have a chill hobby. Uh, like when that. I'm into something, I just like, I, I hobby to the max. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and books were like that for me b before it became my business. I, I, I was a first uh, edition collector. You know, I would hunt down signed first editions of, you know, books that I loved and keep them in pristine state and <laughs> and um and just you know revel in in owning a, a a signed first edition of something um and that's the kind of i guess some part of the mentality that i've kind of brought to illumicrate because i i am that person i'm that person that collects like every edition of the book that i love you know i i have a lot of collections of you know just arcs for a specific author or title or things like that I hunt down like every edition there is and I was that person and I know that my customers are those people <laughs> and and we you know we we help fuel that you know we you know that's why they like collecting our books because they are beautiful they are very collectible there's like a great kind of second-hand economy as well that, you know, as a as an economist, um, I find completely fascinating, you know, the sort of the, 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 the second, 
Yeah, the reselling economy, uh, like what books are worth, why books are worth more than others, what people buy the books for, is it to keep, is it to trade, is it to sell, you know, there's so many different factors, I think, um, of why people buy our books. But I, I definitely say that, yes, we, we have um, helped, you know, we, we have um, definitely helped that kind of collectible, making books a collectible item landscape. That, but that's something that's been around for ages, you know, who has, you know, collecting first editions, collecting nice uh, copies, collecting illustrated editions, signed editions. That's always been a, a thing for book yeah. hobbyists. They used to be yeah. really expensive, though. I remember the folio books did this incredible edition of, like, Philip Kiddick's collected works, and I absolutely loved it. Like, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, and it was 700 quid, and it's just like, I don't love it that much. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really hard, and, you know, I, I dabble a little bit in the, you know, the high-end collectible market. There, there are definitely small, really small presses that do, you know, like, letterpress stuff, you know like really short run like numbered editions and i do i i love those books i think they're beautifully made i think they look gorgeous um yeah and there's something to collecting you know like a beautiful piece of art of something that you love i'm here for collectors uh if you want to collect you collect <laughs> collect and do it do it have fun doing it I was going to ask one last question about crates, uh, market, crate markets abroad, and then and then let mm -hmm. Scott move into um, Daphne Press itself. But, but yeah, I just I wanted to, like, we sort of know in publishing, at least the authors are told that the crate market is not as big in the states, even though it's a bigger country. Um, and I just wondered if you had any insight into that. If if you don't know, it's all right. Or if you can't share, that's okay. But do you? Because Illuminate's now gotten USA distribution, isn't it? Um, and I guess we'll find out if that's a game changer. Yeah, it, 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 you know, I, I, the very first book box, I think of, of its kind of this sort of kind was based, is based in the US and they are still a, a box that are operating today. Um, I, I genuinely think it is down to firstly, the, the market size I think does play into it because the UK is a much smaller market. So an order of the size of Illumicrates and or some of our competitors is big enough that publishers will see that as a significant order for the for the market size and will um, you know do what they can to make the book as special for us as a customer as possible. I think um, from what I've heard in the U.S., obviously I don't directly work with a lot of, I work with some U U.S. publishers now that we are bigger, but I have heard of um, other smaller, I've heard sort of secondhand smaller customers and actually knowing what my discussions with publishers are, that there are minimum quantities that U U.S. publishers will need for them to be able to do something bespoke. And I think customers want or need that level of bespoke when they are choosing to buy the book, not from a bookshop, but from a, another specialist retailer such as ourselves. So I think that is a huge barrier to entry um, in the US market, more so than it is here. I think our, I mean, I think UK publishers have introduced a minimum order quantity but it is i'm sure a lot lower yeah so it's like it, it's a smaller niche but you can dominate it which is what we try to do with this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a very niche topic and it's also 
Um, part of it is also printer capacity. I think UK printers have improved their capabilities, as I've mentioned already, been able to do the fancy edges, they've been able to do this, that and the other, whereas I don't know or think US printers have had the ability to, or maybe they just choose not to. I think that's part of it as well, like what they actually can offer is is interesting. And yeah, no, that makes sense. And I would never have figured it out. Thank you. Um, yeah, everyone in the UK wants in on it now. Waterstones want to do other fancy editions as well. Great, you know, <laughs> it is. I'm, I'm very much like the more the merrier. Like I think if you know if people see the more people see it, the more people want it, right? And it becomes more of a thing, and you know, d demand will will cope with you know demand will increase, you know, sales will increase, you know what printers and publishers can do will get better to meet those needs and you know I think yeah it's great. I honestly love it like I, I if I buy a book I want it to be beautiful so I completely get it as <laughs> yeah people's shelf spaces are are you know they're they're limited right and so when people buy something to display on their shelves they want it to be nice yeah they want it to be decorative as well as something that they want to read no I I, I was just going to comment on uh, somehow that answer is not as surprising as <laughs> as it might seem at first blush that it's you know who the who the blockers might be um, on the U.S. side. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw a little shade, but that is interesting. And I wonder. I was sitting here wondering, you know, in the U.K., I, I this is just anecdotal, my personal obser observation from the outside, but it does seem like the UK science fiction and fantasy community is a little more tight knit. And I wonder how much that has to do with geography and, you know, more shared experiences or, or uh, ability to connect in real life or, or at the very least more shared context for shared experiences versus the U S where it's a vast area yeah, people people from Texas have a very different life from people in, you know, say New England or or what have you. That that's interesting to think about. I would say it is very tight knit from the author side. Like you go to conventions, and I would say a lot of people generally know each other because you know the the pool is smaller and it's you can cross the country in a day. So <laughs> yeah, um, I do recognize you know a lot of the same faces crop up under the the same small group of agents and stuff like that. Um, and the, the readers here tend to be very dedicated. Uh, when I lived with my ex-husband, we inherited a load of books from his uncle when his uncle died. And his uncle had every science fiction fantasy book published in the UK between 1972 and like 2005. And then he had a bunch from the 30s, 40s and 50s as well. And 10,000 books in his Kindle. Wow. And it was just, yeah, so we, we, we had this house that had 4,500 sci-fi and fantasy books, physical copies in it. But it's because he didn't, you know, when he was growing up, there weren't that many readers and nerds. So, you know, the, the few that were there, they're very dedicated. They, they know each other. And <laughs> I guess maybe that's a, a bit more of a, a cultural thing for us. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I definitely think having a, a distance always plays plays a role. But I also think it is because it is, as Sunny says, it's just a smaller pool. You know, it's the same. It's the same people. You just naturally kind of gravitate to each other and form, you know, a, a really good group, I think. So how did you make the leap from doing crates to running your own sci-fi and fantasy imprint? And we're kind of interested in, you know, what prompted that change? What kind of 
practical considerations are involved in, in setting up an independent publisher because that is really complicated. I see a lot of people in Facebook groups and forums say, how do I set up my own press? And the advice is almost always don't. <laughs> I wish I was a part of those groups now. <laughs> yeah. It, it seems like literally every small press, and no offense to small press listeners, but you know, you hear about all of these presses pop up, whether it's somebody building a press just to print their own and their friends, or whether it's a, a, somebody trying to set up a legitimate business as a small press. It just seems like it's such a tough business, but most you of know, them fold you, within two years. Yeah, you you seem to be the the lone star in a dark sky. So we want to hear well, about. Well, we we've not yet hit two years, so we'll see. end up within a year's time. <laughs> um, I, well, I think just going back to the original question, you know, tell us about how we started Daphne Press. Um, it, it it almost felt like a natural progression, I think. Um, you know, we we really have a. I, f- I feel personally that we as a team, um, both from Melinda McCray and Daphne Press, and we all work kind of as one big, you know, happy family. Um, we have a really good understanding of what we think our readers want and what our readers like to read and what our customers have historically gravitated towards and I felt like we had all look we we did it just seemed like the natural next step to then publish your own books I I was just I was honestly I was quite frustrated with sometimes we would see a book that would be acquired in the U.S. and we would ask and it sounded great and we would ask around and we would is anyone in the UK publishing this and you know usually the answer is no and I get it that you know it's a smaller market there's not room for every book that gets published in other countries to come to the UK. There just isn't. It was a bit of both. I wanted the freedom to kind of choose the books that I wanted and bring, you know, bring books over or acquire books that, mm. you know, I thought were really good fits for the the fantasy, the modern fantasy reading audience, I want to say, here in, in the UK. I, I, I also just wanted the freedom to be able to do what exactly what I wanted to the books. <laughs> that that I had yeah, that was kind of that was my sort of thought process for first starting own, my own press and again it doesn't come without it's like I have I've had a lot of experience with Illumicrate I kind of have a good sense of how publishing works you know I um, I'm in touch with a lot of agents I, I I felt like I had enough in place that I could give it a try right and that and that that's kind of that's how I approach things I'm always like Think, I'm going to think sensibly if I've got like the, the tools or the skills or if I know the right people to to be able to at least make a go of it, you know, and that was my, um, my always my first, the, the first thing I think about when I'm trying to start something, something new. With, with Daphne Press, it definitely did have its challenges because there were always parts of publishing that were unknown to me. I think, you know, publishing as an industry, as you guys have talked about on several occasions, is very opaque. And it, it is for a reason, you know. It, it, I think it is because as as businesses, they need to protect, you know, not their knowledge. And, you know, that is their, that's what makes their business run. And, you know, it's like giving away industry secrets. It's like if KFC told everyone what their secret recipe was, you know, it's that kind of thing, you know. And I, I, I understand that businesses have to protect 
their business and you know knowledge is a big part of that um so it was very it was very difficult i i knew right away i needed to hire an editor like i i don't, I don't have an edit i'm not an editor i don't have any editorial experience i knew right away that that was the first you know role that i needed to hire i needed to hire a commissioning editor that could work with authors that we acquired because i wanted to give authors the same experience that they were getting you know from a, i didn't want to just kind of start up this press buy some books and you know not be able to edit my author's work or work with the authors into making their books better and you know so i knew that the first person that i needed to hire was that and thankfully we have hired davi lancet he came from another sff uh, publisher so he had you know five plus years experience commissioning and editing books you know which is invaluable um do you do you have input onto story changes? Because I know you say you're not an editor, but if you're involved in the acquisitions process, or maybe you should tell us what, if you're allowed to right. talk about what that acquisitions process looks like, because I think you do it a bit differently. Yeah, yeah. I, we definitely, I, I definitely have some input. Obviously, I think what I'm lacking is like, you know, I've never written edit letter. I've never kind of workshopped through a book because I'm... I'm both not an editor and I'm not a writer either. So I, I kind of, I have no insight into either part of the, the process, really. I guess I do almost quite, I, I know when something's not working in a book and I, I, I have, you know, I have some suggestions like of what mm-hmm. I would do to improve a book, but they're not, it's not so formal, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that I, I didn't want to just go in, maybe, and, and, and you know, maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but I didn't want to like acquire an author and just start telling them, I I don't know how to fix this, but you need to fix this. I don't yeah. think that would go down very well, no. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that's, a, that's a very noble sentiment. I'll just throw out there that the range of what people get back from their editors is very wide. And that's just coming from knowing like, you know, a dozen or so authors and asking them what their edit letters look like and, and uh, what kind of feedback they get. It, it, there, yeah, as far as I can tell, there's no standard. Well, no, I I think they're all, they're all trained, but I think it was shipping and handling podcast where they talked about the fact that some editors are really good at marketing, but like marketing in the sense of like getting people excited for book, pushing, hype. Um, getting booksellers excited, being really good project managers. And some editors are actually good at like the craft side of the editing. And the gold standard is an editor who's good at both, but you don't necessarily get one who's good at both. And I think that's why it can vary. And, and because different books maybe benefit from different levels of editing or some books, some authors, you know, produce books that are basically polished. And so they're fine with the, an editor who's just a good project manager. And maybe that's where a lot of the variety comes in. And I can say that with impunity because I feel like my editor is good at both. So th- that, that's always my, that's always why I'm okay to like be on the podcast basically. <laughs> and I think, I think that's actually really three or four different roles that you mentioned, right? It, from my perspective. They so do a ton of different things. The, it's crazy. Yeah. The, well, and that's, that's a big part. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I think that's a huge part of why publishing can go so wrong for some people. And why, you know, relationships with editors might flame out pretty hard sometimes because they really are expected to do so many things. There are there are relatively few roles that I know of in corporate America that expect 
that much out of that kind of role because as you mentioned there's the craft right they're expected to be good enough at writing and storytelling that they can tell a professional author what they're at the very least what they're not doing right and where they need to pay more attention to something that's not working maybe they they suggest specific fixes i i don't know how each individual works right but so there's the craft then there's project management right like people make whole careers out of just project management and it's hard and it really sucks like half of why i got out of corporate america is because i kept being forced into the project management or program management box and i just hated it like it is so bad and then there's marketing and knowing who the the target consumer is and knowing who a book would be targeting and and what that that market size looks like and how they are best communicated to and, and that's insane too right and then there's that internal politics and gathering uh, support internally. And honestly, in, in the corporate world, people who are good at all four of those things end up being executives that are paid shit tons of money, like so much money. If you're good at all those things, you are worth so much money. Unless you're and an editor, is, <laughs> in which case you may. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's the problem. Yeah. And then you yeah. can make 45 grand a year in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Live in the subway. <laughs> yeah. Every so often I hear people say online, like, you know, they, I think people outside the industry have this view of editors as being like, they're only in it for the money. And I just think like, do you guys know how little money they don't make? <laughs> Yeah, at publishing, and I, 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 I gave a talk at a school um, just earlier this week, actually, for, you know, kind of the teenagers that wanted to know more about publishing. And I, um, I said, I mean, one of the things I said was that no one, no one does, no one works in publishing unless they really love books, right? Um, it's not one of those industries that you go like my analogy was like no one works in banking and is like oh banks they're the best right (laughs) (laughs) but people that work in publishing love books you have to love books I think to to work under the conditions that you work under when you work in sorry where were we (laughs) oh no sorry uh yeah we were I guess waffling on about how how complicated it was in hiring editors um oh yeah absolutely (laughs) and well the other piece that I found extremely difficult was the sales piece you know and a lot of people I talk to a lot of you know people who are very you know even high up in traditional publishers you know people with experiences starting their own presses have said that the sales piece is absolutely crucial, you know, um, and because if you've got no one to sell your books, it's not, it's, no one's going to know it's a book um, and it's not going to get into the shops, which is what we wanted. So I didn't want to start a press and just print books to go into Lumicrate. That was not the intention of Daphne Press, you know, that's a, a nice bonus, I think, that to have kind of a direct retailer that I can work with. But it's, it wasn't the only thing that I wanted to accomplish. And I wanted our books to be available widely in the trade. And I wanted, again, all the authors that I brought on board to get that experience of seeing their book in a bookshop and, you know, which was very important to me. So that, that piece was, it was different. Honestly, it was hard. 
it, it was it was really hard. I reached out to a lot of different people. There are, there are a lot of companies that do sales on behalf of small publishers. You know that that is a, a business. There's certainly a lot of those companies here in the UK. I wanted someone with the right experience. You know the experience handling genre. You know um, selling genre. And I was we were lucky enough to do a deal with with Titan Books that do our sales and distribution. And Titan obviously are themselves an SFF publisher they are independent but they have great they have a great sales arm and first of all i just want to say kudos to everyone that works in sales in books because i think your function is so important it really is and i work with a lot of salespeople, both from who who do sales for daphne press and who do sales for publishers to me as a lumicrate and i think you're all doing an incredible job i generally do so kudos to everyone that works in sales in in publishing but yeah but titan books were just they just felt like a good fit because they were genre specialists they were themselves an independent publisher and their books are widely available in the trade here and export and so i you know and they definitely have the they had the right capabilities to be able to our books and they have done honestly done a terrific job um, they're a lovely cause... press and uh, george is like he's one of those editors that ever, i know i think two or three people who have him as an editor and they absolutely adore him so george is amazing. yeah he yeah he's great but yeah I, I just honestly um they've done so well for us and i think we've been very lucky to have a, a sales team that actually push push our books you know because our books are in bookshops and we're getting Waterstone special editions and we're, we're selling to other retailers. You know, every time I go into the works, I see one of our books and I'm like, that's really cool, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't have had it, you know, I, I wouldn't have just done it for a Lumicray. I wanted to do it as, I wanted to, it to be a lit, like a legit. <laughs> now you, you mentioned Titan does both UK and sales for export. Does that mean they have gotten you a, a significant U.S. footprint as well, and you you have good distribution there, or is is it primarily U.K. at the moment? It is primarily a U.K., Europe, and Australia, New Zealand, um, mainly because most of the things that we have acquired for Daphne Press are those territories thus far. Mm. So the rights, um, yeah. I I have had books, you know, sent to me that we're offering world or I, I we could have bought world but I yeah. again I don't want to I don't want to do things that I can't deliver on you know so I wasn't going to acquire world not knowing how I was going to sell the book into the US yet and I'm I'm working on that right and I'm I'm learning about the UK, US market I'm working on um, what works there, how, you know, what, where, who are the key retailers who, you know, how does distribution work? Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted, I want that in place before I then start acquiring U.S. rights and not doing anything with them, to, to, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Yep. No, that's very sensible. That because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that more than anything separates you from the other players <laughs> in the game. The, the fact that you care about, you know, what you're doing with the rights you acquire, and it's not just a grab to get all of the rights that you can because they might become, a, uh, you know, valuable to you at some point in the future. Yeah, that that's pretty amazing. And that makes that makes a, t- a ton of sense. I just I just don't, you know, for me, I, I want to be I, you know, I, I care about my authors and want them to get the best deal that they can possibly get. And I know that them selling me U.S. rights is not going to be the best deal for them. And so 
why wouldn't I be happy with the rights that I can actually sell in, you know, with, for the markets that I am comfortable that I can do a good yeah. job in and actually yeah. let them get that other part of their income from other rights that they can sell to other publishers that can do an equally good job in those markets. Yeah, and in the end, everyone benefits that way because if, if it sells well in one market, it's kind of boosting it in another one. Yeah, do you, I think you've got a few more questions, Scott, and then we'll, we'll probably let you go after those. Yeah, Daphne, I know it's I know it's late there for both of you, really. I know, honestly, this, is, this has been really fun. Um, you guys are great. I, I have said I'm, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I look forward to it when it comes up on my you know podcast saying there's a new episode i get very excited <laughs> oh, thank you yeah. that's really amazing to hear and weird to hear but amazing to hear <laughs> yeah i mean the the rest of our questions and sunny and i have been going through a, a shared document of our questions you know that we sent you and like crossing off and adding as, as we go. So trying to look through and, and, and see what we need to hit. I think you've organically hit most of them. You know, I think you talked about why you built Daphne in addition to, to Illumicrate and that plays into how I'm sure you acquire books, but is there anything specific that you look for? And this might be, something to to inform the agents and authors that are listening uh, which is also weird but they are what what are what are you looking for at Daphne what what do you hope people send your way yeah um for sure i you know daphne press i think um was which we are still trying to form our sort of identity i want the identity to be you know we are a home for you know telling uh being a space for marginalized writers to be able to tell their stories you know um and that that is obviously one of the, like our key pillars i want to tell stories from diff uh, authors from different backgrounds authors of color whether that's diaspora whether that's you know not disabled authors queer authors you know i i want I want those stories and those are stories that I'm always looking for, that the team are always looking for. I have certain things that I love. Um, my team and my editor obviously have certain things that they love. I think obviously the Lumicrate books are a good measure for this the type of books that we've read and enjoyed. And again, sure. that is very vast in terms of the types of books that we um, have picked and featured, you know, I, I want, I'm going to put this out there into the world because I, I promised my team that I would something, but I have become a huge audio listener actually just this, literally this past year. And I would probably get to submissions faster if the author would read me the first three chapters <laughs> and send it with the submission. So I'm just going to throw that into the world and see if that actually becomes a thing. No pressure, but I I really enjoy books being read as as audio. I've read so many fantastic books that way and you know, that's I think a testament to some of the great audio production and the narrators that, you know, are hired and actors that are hired to do mm -hmm. audiobooks, but I find things more memorable I think when I listen to them in audio, which is which is a which is a a strange thing and it's maybe just cuz I read a lot. I I do a lot of my reading on my Kindle because a lot of things I get are manuscripts. Yeah, so I, I don't actually have physical books. By the time physical arcs come out, it's honestly, it's too late a lot of the time. I do all of my work re 
reading on on my Kindle or my computer. I try my very best not to read on my computer because it's just really bad for your eyes. Yeah. If authors want to read me their books and send it with submissions, I would absolutely love that. I know it's like a pipe but it might happen. I think you underestimate how desperate (laughs) authors can be. (laughs) You are about to get so many audio files. Do you accept submissions from indie authors as well? Mm -hmm. I know people have asked you about that in the past. Not at the moment. So I, we have actually acquired one indie author, but that was me approaching her. I was a fan of her work. And so I approached her about it and I made a very good case for, you know, Daphne Press and thankfully she agreed. (laughs) I feel like we are getting enough submissions uh, through agents and through agents that I have faith that they're doing a good job, you know, kind of vetting and sending us a sifting through things and knowing exactly the sort of books that we would be interested in. Thank you agents for for doing that. (laughs) I think maybe at some point when say we have, because obviously we only have Davi as our commissioning editor, um, Mm -hmm. myself who also reads and, and, and acquires, um, and then Caitlin, who, who I mentioned before, and, and Tori are, are sort of the core team that sort of read and choose Daphne, what books, you know, we want to acquire. I think we're the team to expand and we were to take on another editor, an editorial assistant or something along those lines, then, then maybe there would be a time, like a window where we potentially could open up to indie authors and, and things like that. But I think indie authors are doing amazing amazingly at the moment i think this is this is the time right that indie publishing is having like a great great boom and first of all i'm in awe of authors that can write so fast (laughs) Um, because they do they produce so much so many books so quickly and i'm like wow that's amazing and essentially each indie author is 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 their own publisher you know and i think Mm -hmm. that's a great skill set you know, to have because they're out there, they're marketing their books, they're turning it into the right file formats, they're doing their own production, they're doing their own editing, you know, they're, they're a publisher in their own right. And, you know, so many authors have found success that way. And I think if that's what works best for you, then I think you should do that. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Mostly, I was just curious. But yeah, (laughs) and I thought if I don't ask that people will write in and like, bug me and say I should have asked that or something so I I would love to I would honestly love to because I think there's a lot of great stories out there that are indie published but it's the same thing it's sort of the opposite question like if you are a successful indie published author what would you really want to be traditionally published you know yeah for sprayed edges Mm -hmm. maybe (laughs) for sprayed edges maybe (laughs) yeah Uh, hey, sprayed edges are awesome. You could do a lot. You could do a lot for a sprayed edge, right? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Because I, I mean, I was completely psyched when you said you wanted to. You know, you were willing to come and chat and tell us about the the very mysterious world of crates. <laughs> it was. Hopefully it a was a bit very less mysterious uh, now. Hopefully, yes, it is much less. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're you might have given away too much info like this. was (laughs) This was extremely informative. But yeah, it it was a big moment for us when Sunny said, Oh, my God, Daphne listens to the show. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, this is this has been very, very fun for us. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later. Thank you.